Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm, the, I'm, the I'm Patrick Bedevi, the host of ITM, and today I'm sitting down with Gary Nessner, who is the official chief FBI negotiator. He had like a few hundred FBI agents that reported to him, and he was the main one that negotiated with David Koresh during the Waco siege. This is very interesting. Gary, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's good to have you on. So, Gary, uh, some of us sell life insurance for a living. Some people save lives for a living through negotiation. It's a very different life of yours and mine of what you did for a living. Is that story true that when you watch J. Edgar Hoover on Mickey Mouse Club, that inspired you want to be an FBI agent? Yeah, it was probably 1958. I was a young kid and um, I was born in 1950 and uh, I saw that on TV. I didn't know anything about the FBI before then, but it, um, it something clicked with me. It sounded like a very interesting, challenging, prestigious job. And of course, back then in, in that era, the FBI was sort of held up on a pedestal uh, in, in a way that may be not be true today. So it just really inspired me and uh, it became a goal of mine. And you know, many, many, many years later, it, it came true and I was never disappointed. By the way, what a recruiting method, you know, if you think about it, like really, what a way to go out there and, you know, have, was J. Edgar Hoover really on Mickey Mouse Club? And if he was, what did he say on Mickey Mouse Club? I'm curious. I don't remember what he said, but it, the show, uh, you know, I know they had other iterations of it, but that early show was sort of a kid's variety show. You know, they did skits and movies and did interviews and, and informed a bit of a travelogue sometimes. But one of the hosts went to FBI headquarters in Washington. And uh, in addition to talking about the FBI, got an interview with Jagger Hoover and uh, they even went to the firearms range together and shot the Thompson machine gun. And I, I just thought that was terrific. So, so it wasn't necessarily that you wanted to go in the military or be a cop. You specifically wanted to be an FBI agent. Yeah, I think so. And my mom was, uh, you know, I told her about having seen the show and she went out and bought me a book about the FBI and I'm reading about chasing gangsters and uh, catching spies and, uh, you know, all the interesting things that the FBI did, and um, which all was true. And, and it really, I don't know, something about it clicked. I mean, I have a friend that wanted to be a doctor since he was a young kid. I have another friend that wanted to be a pilot. They all followed their dreams, and I did too. So something about it, uh, you know, really was good for me. Now, did the life of an FBI agent, because when I was in the military, I was getting out. I, I kind of went to the FBI. I went to the unit in LA because to me it was kind of cool and they actually pay pretty well as well. I mean, if you become an FBI agent, you're not making 50 grand here. You're making uh, a good hundred, 200,000, depending on overtime and, and, and the time you put into it. But was this the life that you expected it to be or was it better? Was it more curveballs? Was it less exciting? What was it like? No, I think it was, is everything I expected and more. I mean, um, there was such a wide range of work that you could do. I mean, you would be chasing a bank robber one day and the next year day, there's a kidnapping of some kid, um, you know, and then you're, you know, arresting some fraudulent uh, banker, you know, I mean, uh, it just was a, a wide range of activities that we did that I think were pro provided pretty constant stimulation, obviously a lot of paperwork and reporting and 
testimony in court and so forth, preparing for cases. But I found it all to be enjoyable. I never, I never had a morning where I woke up and said, I don't feel like going to work today. That's great to hear. So I think you were talking about the life was what you expected it to be and even more because you had a lot of different things on uh, what the life was like. So, so Gary, it, it, let, let's just say if we were in high school together, okay? 10th grade. I'm more curious about 10th or 11th grade. If we were in high school together, who was Gary Nessner in 10th grade or 11th grade? I was a pretty happy kid. Um, I, I was raised near the beach in, in the Jacksonville area of Florida. Atlantic Beach is where I was raised. And um, I had a great family, great friends. Um, you know, I, I, in high school at that age, I, I was on the track and cross-country teams. I, uh, you know, um, would surf, uh, which was a kind of a new sport that was evolving. And, you know, I lived two blocks from the ocean, so I'd carry my surfboard up there and go surf. And, uh, yeah, it was a great time to be raised as a kid and a time where as a child you had perhaps a great deal more freedom than kids do today or certainly that my kids have because there just wasn't the perception of any risk you know that the whole kind of community would would pretty much call your parents if you were misbehaving and that certainly happened with me a couple times um but yeah it, it was a you know i think i was a pretty average kid i was an average student um I was an athlete, but not a, a standout athlete, except for in, in running a bit. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I was kind of down the middle, you know, in so many ways. So, but did people know you were going to be an FBI agent? It was kind of like a known thing or not really? Like if, if I was... My friends, my close friends certainly knew that was uh, an aspirational goal. And what later came to be the case, you know, I, I've, I think I got this from my father a little bit. I was always a bit of a natural mediator. And... Um, uh, in, in my family, um, you know, conflict was seen as a waste of energy and, um, you know, a, a not a positive uh, use of your time and energy. So I was always uncomfortable when, say, friends would have a disagreement or a squabble. And, and I always would, without even knowing what the term negotiation was, which didn't even exist then in the law enforcement context. I mean, I certainly would always try to mediate those uh those disagreements and get us back to a normal state of, of interaction. And uh, so I think that came into uh, focus later on when I became an FBI agent and learned about this new emerging discipline in law enforcement. And it, it was, I found it very attractive. Were you in a family where there was a lot of fights where you had to calm your mom and dad down or siblings down or not really? It was a pretty calm uh, household. Pretty, pretty calm. Pretty calm household. Yeah, pretty yeah, calm. You, know, some, you know how sometimes they see comedians, uh, who are very good at what they do. You go back and you study their life. You can tell they came up with a lot of pressure. So comedy was a form of them coming their lives on. Sometimes mediators, personalities, the household is with a lot of friction where they have to naturally learn from a young age to get parents to be on the same page. <laughs> Having been in a business yourself for a while and been the chief of FBI crisis negotiation unit, I mean, you're not just one of them, you're the chief of it. What have you seen are qualities of somebody who makes a good negoti FBI negotiator and what some are like, what are some qualities that there's no way this person can be a good negotiator? Have you seen a trend over the years? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a couple attributes that, that we, we see in successful negotiators. And this doesn't apply simply to law enforcement negotiations, but in business and sales and management, people are good listeners. They have a, a lot of self-control. They don't um, rise emotionally to a, a, a slight or an insult and go on the attack right away. They ask questions to try to gather more information. They are likable 
they're seen as trustworthy and genuine and sincere. These are all the attributes. And, and, you know, you mentioned earlier that you and others are in sales. You know, I think you would agree with me that basically everything in life is based on relationship. It it, it just simply is, Uh, whether you're trying to sell a product or you're trying to uh, deal with family crisis, um, an argument with your neighbor, whatever it might be. It's all about relationships. And if you take the time and invest in uh, building a positive relationship, number one, you can avoid problems. But if they do surface, they being problems, you can diffuse those by the manner which you react to it. You know, it, it takes two to tango. It takes two people to argue. And if you're being the voice of reason and you're calm and your tone and demeanor are proper, you're far more likely to achieve the outcome that you want. That makes sense. Is, is there a certain uh, 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 protocol or approach to building rapport? Like, have you noticed something that works very well? I mean, obviously, you know, uh, I've been in business for a while, so I've read a lot of the books on building rapport. Is there anything unconventional that's worked for you over the years, or is it the same thing that we've read about? Well, I'm not sure what you've read or what you would consider conventional or not, but the, the bread and butter of negotiations is, is active listening skills. And the, the premise being that Um, for you to be successful in any sort of interaction, you need to get information and cooperation from somebody. You don't want to spend the entire time telling them how you think and how you feel. You already know that. By actively listening, you set yourself up to, number one, get the information you need. Number two, to project your sincere and genuine interest in what they have to say. Those are powerful interpersonal communication skills. We, we call them active listening because many people believe listening is a passive endeavor. And in reality, it's not. Active listening is when you hear someone's emotion, you say, boy, you, you know, Patrick, you sound really confused by what's going on. You know, and if, if that's an accurate reflection of how you feel, then I've scored some big points. You are saying in your mind, yes, Gary understands me. Or you may correct me and say, no, I'm, I'm not confused. I'm disappointed. Well, now I've learned something even more valuable to me. Uh, you know, I, I've learned very specifically what it is that is driving your behavior. Now, you know, we, fra- uh, we use paraphrasing. We, we feed back in our own words. Let me, let me tell you what I think I've heard you say, and, and I want to get it right. And uh, uh, if I do get it reasonably right, um, you're going to say, yes, you understand. Because a lot of the people I used to deal with in my life uh, feel as though no one has really listened to them, no one has respected them, no one has paid attention to their point of view. So when I all of a sudden take the time and effort to sincerely and genuinely reflect back what I'm hearing from them and how they feel about it, those are the powerful communication tools that create a relationship of trust, not necessarily a lifelong friendship, but in the, the time frame we're talking about, it creates um, uh, it's the opposite of confrontation. It calms things down and helps us move forward in, in gaining cooperation. Who's the most unreasonable person you negotiated with? <laughs> well, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a long list of characters uh, in, in my life, but I mean, I, I guess the big topic would be David Koresh that, that you know, that we dealt with at Waco. He, but but it's not a full-time thing. There were times where he was cooperative and he was down to earth and you could talk to him. And then there would be other times where he was unreasonable and self-serving, narcissistic, uh, you know, very um, sinister and dark in, 
in his behavior. So, you know, we, we always worked and strived to put him into that place where we, we were avoiding a, a, con, a combative uh, engagement. Did, did somebody, I mean, do you think other events in the past, like, you know, the scene with Weaver on what happens in Waco where you're going back and forth and you you bring up Bo, so Bo has some kind of a trust after the shooter killed his wife. You know, were there other experiences you, you had that led you to being prepared for uh, negotiating with David Koresh? And if yes, what were some of those? Well, yeah, I worked a, a lot of cases before the 1993 Waco incident. So, you know, the FBI's whole curriculum in terms of negotiations was, um, you know, it's part art and part science. I mean, the science is to get people to cooperate, which is our goal. Um, we need to establish a relationship of trust. So that's the scientific part. We, we know the requirement and the goal. The other part is a bit of art. How do you do that? How do you uh, project your sincerity and honesty and genuine people like to work with people that they like and respect. So, I mean, you get what you give. So, you know, those are, are sort of the parameters. So when we dealt with the David Koresh, we knew we'd responded to an incident that uh, resulted in a terrible shootout between the ATF, a different agency, and the Branch Davidians that Koresh led. And we knew that there were dead people, there was wounded people, there was great emotion, there was, um, uh, you know, a great uh, bit of anger and frustration, one side versus the other. We had to, we, the FBI negotiation team, we had to come in and sort of separate ourselves and try to project that we were sort of a neutral uh, mediating entity, you know, that, hey, we're not the ATF um, and we don't pretend to understand all the issues that are important to you, but we want to learn. We want to see if we can work with you so that we can avoid further bloodshed and we can get this resolved peacefully. And, and that's what we did. In the first half of the Waco incident, we got 35 people out, including 21 children, a, a fact that's often overlooked. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. It's unfortunate that, that things uh, digressed, uh, you know, after I left the scene. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of our goal. So, yeah, I think we were well prepared to d deal with a David Koresh. But we had other internal disagreements in the FBI that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in this interview and certainly uh, discussed in my book. I guess the biggest thing is, you know, prior to uh, uh, negotiating with David Koresh, wh who was, did you have a scenario like one that's, you know, like, for example, you talk to a, a, a Michael Jordan or you talk to a, uh, uh, a delayed Kobe Bryant or you talk to a Brady or some of these guys in sports, they'll, uh, you'll say, so tell me the toughest opponent you ever face. And yeah. they'll say, well, you know, I hated playing against, you know, Joe Dumars. Or I hated <laughs> defending against this guy. Who was the toughest person you faced off pre-David Koresh that you were both, you know, uh, uh, excited with the results that you got or one where you said, I wish I wouldn't have taken that approach in a negotiation? Were there any on both sides that you remember? Yeah, there's two that stand out, and I talk about both in my book. One um, was a case in the 80s in Virginia where a guy had kidnapped his former common-law wife and child and, uh, from Connecticut and drove them to Virginia, and we located them in, an, in a remote uh, farmhouse, and, and I ended up negotiating with him for some 10 hours. Now, he was a, a very dangerous guy. There were times where we communicated quite effectively, but his uh, controlling nature over uh, his former uh, ex-wife and child uh, made him a, 
high potential for lethality. We were pretty certain he was going to kill her and possibly himself and the child. Uh, suicide often follows a homicidal act. So it was a huge challenge connecting with him. So he was one of the toughest cases I've ever worked with. And in fact, we ended up, I had to negotiate him out of the house on his hopes of getting to a helicopter where an FBI marksman took his life. The other case was uh, also in the 80s. It was on a train in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, an Amtrak train. A guy was a drug runner and he was uh, traveling with his sister and her two small children. They were sort of his disguise. And um, he ended up having an argument with her and shooting and killing her. Uh, the train was, the cars were detached in Raleigh and negotiations set forth. This was extremely challenging because he only spoke Spanish. He, um, he, he was one of those who was almost afraid to communicate with us for fear that we would hear the uh, fear in his voice, that we would psychologically get into his head or whatever it was. And at the same time, we had children dying of dehydration and one of them did die. So we had that clock ticking against us on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, we had this challenge of, of an effective communication channel. Uh, you know, it ultimately worked out that he did surrender. We saved one of the two children, but it was an extremely difficult case. He subsequently died in prison. But um, those two stand out, I think, in the area you talked about, uh, Patrick, as, as being extraordinarily challenging ones that I dealt with, uh, you know, well prior to Waco. Did, did, did I overhear Clarksville like there was something going on with Clarksville? I, I heard the city Clarksville. And I was in Clarksville for two years. Did you have something that happened in Clarksville? Because it wasn't a Waco series where the character, you know, Michael uh, Corbett says something in Clarksville. No, I think that was a made up. Uh, they, they were referring to another case. I uh, can't remember which one that was, but no, that, that okay. something did not happen in Clarksville. Got it. So, so with all these characters you've dealt with, how many total people would you say you've negotiated with in your career? If you were to say the number of people you've negotiated with. You know, I, I couldn't put a number on it. it. It's not as big as you think because it, it, two things. Um, you may find a police negotiator in a small jurisdiction that's done way more of these than I have. And the typical one lasts a couple hours. It's a, a guy that's drank too much. He's having a fight with his wife and so forth and so on. The FBI, we tended to, to work very long, challenging cases where we had an entire team and Sometimes I would be the primary, but as often as not, I was leading the team and not necessarily personally speaking. But, you know, there's certainly quite a few that I've done personally and, um, um, you know, gained a lot of experience through that. But I, I think we uniquely worked long sieges that no one else has ever experienced. Makes sense. Because is the number 51 days with uh, David Koresh? Is that the number uh, I've read? Some that's correct. 51 days. And we so did... Three years later, we did the Montana siege that was 85 days. And then wow. uh, I was down in Peru when the Japanese ambassador's residence was taken over by MRTA terrorists. That was 120 days. Um, and then we had worked several prison riots that have lasted at least a week and some right-wing militia standoffs, the Republic of Texas, and I mentioned the Freeman case. So the, the FBI probably has more major siege management in terms of uh, a negotiation process than, than anyone in the world. Um, and, and so we, we've learned quite a bit about it. Gary, is there, is there a similar trend amongst all these personalities, all of these personalities? Like when you go on, you know, if I go sit with a client and I get their financial needs analysis, say, hey, how much money do you make? What do you have in your 401k? What do you have this? Hey, this is how much you have in a CD and an annuity and some stocks and some, you know, retirement plans. 
Do you see a commonality amongst all of these folks that you've negotiated with over the years? One of the things we see in, in terms of personality is impulsivity. A lot of these people um, respond to life events in a very impulsive way. Um, they, they have a low threshold for frustration and anger. Often they don't have very good coping skills. They have what we call the double, double whammy. You know, when most of us have a problem at work, we turn to our families for support. If we have uh, problems at home, we may turn to a trusted colleague at work for support. A lot of the people we deal with have neither one of these. They don't have a family support structure and they don't have a steady work environment. So they're, they haven't developed maybe the coping mechanisms that many of us have that, that would have helped them avoid the situation to, to begin with. The other thing I think it's a common misnomer that uh, even law enforcement officials have. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard an official say to me, that son of a gun inside, he's manipulating us. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's being a real jerk. In my experience, I usually say to them something like, well, that may be the case here. I said, but my experience is these people have gotten themselves into a situation they have no idea how to get out of. No idea. And their decision, their default decision is no decision. <laughs> they don't want to come out and go to jail. They don't want to stay in forever. So they just don't do anything. And, and we have to break through that. So I think it's often a mistake that we attribute in them too much calculated activity. I think David Koresh, as calculating as he could be, even fell into that category. He basically didn't want to come out and go to jail the rest of his life. And, you know, he would have loved us to go away, but he, he just made no decision. They just stayed in there and refused to come out. And um, it's something you have to recognize that uh, pe people often are shooting from the hip. And, and they don't have a clear plan. That's uh, very interesting because I remember in the, in the scene of the movie where you're going out there and you're negotiating with uh, Bo and uh, there's a scene where you're going to Bo and saying, you know, uh, people tend to do things based on fear. If you can get uh, to find out people's most highest thing they fear, then you can get motive. And then you said his fear is this with Weaver. And then he said, your fear is, having to live with the rest of your life, that if the other kid dies, that you could have done something about it. Is, is fear a big idea that you try to get as a negotiator? No, I, I think that might have been overplayed a little bit. It is a factor. And I, it's funny, I was, um, I, in real life, I was not at Ruby Ridge. Uh, uh, my partner was. I was out of the country at the time. But the actor that played me in the Waco six-part series was Michael Shannon, a great, great actor, a great guy. And the producers and directors needed to get him into that first episode. So they put me at a place I really wasn't. Now those things happened, but, but it wasn't me that did them. And I wasn't happy about that, but that's the way it went. But yeah, I mean, I think I remember watching that scene and, and they had a variation of it. And I, I suggested to the director, I said, why don't we turn that fear thing into putting pressure on the guy that was playing Bo Grice to say, Hey, well, you know, how are you going to feel when you know you could have done something and you didn't? Um, that's what you should fear. And, you know, and they ended up uh, incorporating that into the dialogue. And I think it, it was quite effective in that, in that scene. So, so, so that was very effective scene when he talked about the fear and his negotiating when Michael was doing it, the, the actor, when he was going through that with Bo. But the, what are some of the most valuable currencies that you guys uh, try to get, you know, in your world? Meaning if you're going against, 
a hostage that you're negotiating, what are your currencies? Meaning is because everything's, I'm assuming it's about leverage. It's about listening to them and active listening, seeing what they want, building a rapport, gaining some kind of a trust, which David Koresh, you were one of the people that he trusted the most when he was going back and forth. He actually uh, uh, it seemed like he enjoyed talking to you based on some of the things you read about. But what are some important currencies that you try to get? I know there's the milk scene. I know there's the fear topic. You know, there is the patient side where you're saying 51 days is, you know, the, the, the Waco siege, 120 days was the one with Japan, 85 days, Montana siege. What are some currencies you use to have leverage when you negotiate with the hostage? I think the biggest goal that you try to achieve is a level of trust. People will not surrender. They won't cooperate. They won't agree to something unless they have a certain level of trust. Now, it takes a little bit of time to build that, and there's various levels of, of trust. But that's what we're really striving for. The other thing I should say, based on your question, we really have to look at what negotiators do in kind of two categories. One is an actual hostage taking, and you have to understand this is more like business because in a hostage taking, the person has a clear cut goal in mind. They want something they can't get on their own. Maybe it's escape, maybe it's money, maybe it's a release from prison, whatever it might be. They can't do it on their own, so they hold the hostage and threaten to harm the hostage unless the authorities give them what they want. The good news on that story is they need us, the police, to do what they want. So it sets up a scenario for quid pro quo bargaining. Well, we can do this, but you have to do that. And if you keep in mind that the person is there primarily to get their demands met and not to kill, that gives us a powerful advantage. And usually with the passage of time, they hold the hostage, they feel initially empowered and in control. And then when time passes and they don't get us to jump every time they snap their fingers and we don't roll over and give them everything they want without them giving us something, you know, they finally come to the point of view saying, well, I, I guess I'm not going to get what I want. You know, there's an old story about a hijacking in New York you know, way back in the 70s, and the guy wanted to fly uh, to, to Europe. And in part of his discussions with the negotiators, he said, I want, next time you come out here, bring me a hot cup of coffee with cream and two sugars. You know, an hour later, the coffee comes out, and it's cold, and there's no sugar, and there's no cream. And the guy surrenders about 20 minutes later. And, and they said, well, what was it that made you surrender? And he said, well, I figured if I couldn't get a decent cup of coffee, this other stuff wasn't going to work out. <laughs> you know, and it and it's sort of a humorous way to look at kind of how the expectations got lowered and the yeah. reality set in that, hey, you're not the big kahuna. You don't just say you want something and it's going to happen. Uh, you got to go through us. Now, those incidents that I just described, is only about 10% really of what we do. Most police officers will never work a legitimate hostage situation. What they're working, 90%, is emotionally driven situations where the victim, not really a hostage, the victim and the person holding them, you know, have a pre-existing relationship. It's a employee, employer, it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, you know, neighbor, neighbor, whatever it might be. They have a history that is uh, tense, problematic, and confrontational that has erupted into this event. And those are the cases where the person really doesn't know how to get out of what they got into. They just are expressing their emotions. And our job in those cases is not so much to make a deal, but to lower their 
uh, emotional levels, get them to a point where they're thinking a little more clearly and a little more rationally and realizing that anything violent that they do is just self-defeating and self-destructive. And we're pretty successful at those as well. But I will tell you, when there is loss of life, it's in those situations, not a hostage situation. Interesting. Interesting. How do you how do you disconnect? At one time, I brought the former director of CIA to my office, and I was running a Vistage meeting. It's a business group that get together with different CEOs, and uh, you know, he came and he was telling us different stories of what it was like to be a, a director of CIA. And one of the questions everybody was asking is, how do you disconnect when you go home? Because you're going through all these other stories. How did you not let these stories psychologically get to you, or did they ever get to you where you were emotionally burned out? Yes and yes. I mean, um, certainly in my life, you have to understand that um, the FBI has 350 negotiators and they're spread all over the United States. And they reported to me, you know, or through my through my uh, supervisors and under me, but indirectly to me. We also had at any given time, FBI negotiators deployed overseas working kidnapping cases. So whether it was from the West Coast late at night, their time, which was very early in the morning, my time, or from the Philippines or from Columbia, South America, it was not at all unusual for me to get calls, you know, several times a week where I would have to get up in the middle of the night. So in many respects, you couldn't let it go altogether. But I guess I developed some skills to compartmentalize it and to deal with the problem as effectively as I could and then try to get some sleep before I went back into work the next day, whatever it might be. But it does have an effect on you. Um, it's like a surgeon operating, uh, you know, there's been a terrible accident and they've got a family and they've got children and somebody's died and somebody else has to have a leg amputated. Well, don't tell me that the surgeon isn't impacted by that, but they compartmentalize it. They put it aside and say, you know, I can't bring back that child that died. So my energy devoted towards grieving for that is not going to help me save the other lives in the balance. So I have to put that aside momentarily. Now, when they get home later on and their wife says, how was your day? You know, you know, maybe things come out and so forth. But I would typically find, and my wife would, would do that for a while. She said, well, you know, how'd that go today? And sometimes I would say, you know, much to my uh, discredit, I would say, you know, I just lived it for 12 hours. I don't want to, I don't want to sit down and go through it again. That's not really healthy, but sometimes you just, you can only deal with so much, you know, but I found that, um, I used to tell negotiators to think about the serenity prayer. And if you're familiar with that, it basically says, you know, it, it grant you the power to understand what you can do, what you can't do. Powerful. And to really Except. understand the difference. And I kind of lived my career by that. And, you know, in fact, the thing that negotiators are most impacted upon psychologically are, believe it or not, are suicides. You know, when the bank robber kills a hostage, you know who to blame. He's a jerk. He's a, a criminal, a thug, an asshole, whatever. But when, a, when you're talking to a nice lady whose husband's left her and she has no family and she's depressed and she kills herself while you're talking to her on the phone, it is natural for a negotiator to say, what could I have said differently? How, how, why couldn't I connect with her? Because she was a good person. She's not a bad criminal. Those would be the cases that would be the most impactful. So I would, getting involved in those cases, I would tell the negotiator, listen, you need to put yourself in the right frame of mind right now. You're not, anything you say is not going to make this happen. You can try to stop it from happening. But if she decides to kill herself, 
That's her decision. It's not because you said something wrong. So be prepared for that. Do the best you can to help this woman find a reason to live. But if she doesn't, it's not your fault. And the other thing we did in negotiations, uh, you know, Patrick, that I think was so powerful, we always had a philosophy when we typically work as a team of negotiators. We, we don't have one person making all the decisions or deciding. I, I might on this occasion be the person on the phone, but there's five or six people saying, how do we all assess this situation? How do we read it? What do we agree upon should be the strategy moving forward and how we communicate with this person? So in other words, we rise and fall as a team. We, we share the blame or we share the credit. In the FBI, we never ran the negotiator in front of the camera and say, oh, Gary Nessner talked this person out. No, our negotiation team did it. So it's a success that we share. And if it's a failure, you know, well, uh, I'm not going to take it all on my shoulders because I was the voice, but the team agreed with what we were doing. So those are, and I think that would apply in a lot of business contexts as well. Very interesting. So very interesting to mentally shape the uh, FBI agents' mindset, the 350 that reported to you through their managers or directors, supervisors, to go in. If you're dealing with somebody that's suicidal, do your best. But if they do kill themselves, you're going to have to live on and not have to rehash that in your mind over and over and over again. Is that, is that almost what I'm thinking based on what you no, just said? No, that's, that's, exact, that's exactly right. And, you know, just by you saying it didn't mean that, that it didn't happen. But you know, that's what you do. I mean, I have a very dear friend, even to this day, who is a police officer in the West Coast, and he's a negotiator, and he's a great one. He's retired now, but he was negotiating with a guy in a, a hallway of a tenement building, and all of a sudden, the guy, you know, came out and started shooting at him, and he, as a negotiator, ended up shooting and killing the guy, and he was very upset about that. Negotiators are used to getting people surrender, not having to to exercise deadly force. But I spent, he called me up in the middle of the night. We spent a long time talking that night and some other nights. And again, you know, you may have certain perceptions about police today. There's a lot of conflict going on, but here's a real caring guy whose life was devoted to getting people to peacefully surrender. And he had to take a life and it really didn't sit well with him. And not surprisingly. So I had to give him basically that same pep talk. Hey, he made the decision, not you. You know, you you only did what you had to do to protect yourself and your partner. And um, some things are simply out of our control, you know. Uh, and I think we all have to realize that. And, yeah. and you know, understanding your, you know, you know, Clint Eastwood used to say in the movie, you know, everybody's got to know their limitations. Legendary guy right there. You know, in the business world, we say uh, uh, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves, right? They'll say, oh. Look, this is all we can do. You can't help this person any more than you can. If they don't want to help themselves, there's nothing you can do for them. Is there anybody yeah. you ever, is there, is there a, uh, a criteria of people you negotiated that whether there was a name you called or qualified this or was there a scoring system to say there is nothing you can say with this person for them to be reasonable or is the mindset always no, I think there is another angle. How about let's try this angle? Is there always like, let's try another angle? Or are there some people that no matter what you say, they're not, they're not going to reason with you? There are some of those people. But what we try to do is when a negotiation team opens up communication, we immediately and continually begin to track the indicators of progress or the indicators of potential violence. And there's a lot of ways we do that. Is the um, level, the emotional level subsided, or is it increased? 
is the use of uh, aggressive language. I mean, we'll actually track it and circle, you know, the, the number of words. Well, you know, he said uh, he was going to kill her seven times two hours ago, and he only mentioned it once this hour. So that's progress of a sort. So we try to see, are we headed in the right path? Sometimes we'll say we're going to switch negotiators because this is, we're sort of at a stalemate. Let's try a, a, a different voice, a different approach. Not that the other negotiator was bad, but, you know, maybe, maybe we need to, to play it up, uh, tur- uh, change it up a little bit. Um, so we're constantly doing a, an evaluation, a reevaluation, a reassessment between each phone call. And it's usually on the phone. Um, the team, uh, before they do anything, before they go have a cigarette or get lunch break or go to the bathroom, we analyze the last call before we do anything. What did we hear? What did everybody hear? What did he sound like? What's his tone? What's his demeanor? Any change in demands? It's, oh, you heard that. I didn't hear that. That's important to know. Let's listen to the recording of it again, and I'll go through it. And based on that, now, what is our next call? What do we anticipate him saying? What's, what's our response going to be? It, it's very methodical and very planned out. Then, and when we're ready for that next call, which might come in unexpectedly, uh, then we can go take a break and, and stretch our legs. And because now we have a plan for moving forward. If the guy calls up without warning, we've got up on a situation board what it is we're going to say. What, the, what are the two or three key points we want to make in this next conversation? And, and Gary, is it, is it a lot of like there's a handful of you guys that let's just say it's, it's a bigger case you're dealing with. Is it a handful of you sitting there saying, so, John, what was your biggest takeaway? What do you think about what he said? Did you notice what this is? Absolutely. that kind of how it is? Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as a, it came, you know, it it was a challenge for me later in my career because I had done this so long and, and I held a certain position where I had to be careful. If I spoke up too soon, here's what we need to do. Then everybody's going to say, okay, this is what Gary wants to do. We're going to do that. Mm -hmm. So I had to really restrain myself and say, what, what do you think? You know, does anybody have any ideas? You know, you may know where we're going to go, but you have to make your team um, feel comfortable that their inputs could be listened to and appreciated and incorporated. And frankly, there were some great ideas in some of the cases I worked that came up from very inexperienced to new negotiators. And you say, I'm sure glad we had this chat because that's a great idea. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's it. So, so in sales, we call, when you say switching negotiating, we call that TO. You turn it over. When I used to work at Bally's, you'd go in there and I was the TO guy at the office. So they would come in and, you know, Jennifer would say, or, you know, whoever, somebody would say, I can't make the sale, uh, but listen, I need yeah. somebody to TO. Then we'd send somebody else in there to take a different angle. And many times you would close the deal because they're hearing it from a different person that it can connect with. That's very interesting when you're saying that. And so if, if you don't mind, let's just get right into the whole Waco sure. uh, situation with David Koresh, because a part of what you just said took me back to the uh, part in the episode where I think Steve Schneider's talking to you on the phone. And he says, look, I have my own opinion on a personal level, but dot, dot, dot. And then you got off and you told him, said, did you hear how he said personal level? That was your opportunity to go in to have two different personalities to get Steve and his mind because he was getting some control. But prior to going into that, let, let's just go through the whole experience here. Um, when did you get a call when they said, hey, Gary, we need your help? on this case taking place in Waco, Texas. And how was that approach? When you heard it, was it a call? Was it a, how did that happen? Yeah, it happened on February 28th of 1993. And it was a Sunday. And I was actually out at a hardware store with my family, uh, my wife and I and our three kids. 
and back then we didn't have uh, cell phones uh, in the FBI. We had beepers, and uh, my beeper went off, and I knew it was my my boss's number. So I went to a phone booth at a Burger King across the street, and I called him up, and he said, "Hey, it's uh, I think this was early afternoon. Uh, there'd been a shootout in Waco, and he gave me the basic parameters of what happened, and he said, "I need you to." get to the airport where we kept some FBI planes and you need to fly out there right away. So we even had in my unit, we had what we call ready bags. I mean, we already, we carry a bag around in our cars that had all our gear. Now I was in the family sedan. I wasn't driving an FBI car to the hardware store in the weekend. So I had to go home, drop off the family, get my FBI car and my gear and head to the airport. And I ended up flying out there. Um, it always takes longer than you think and end up getting there that evening uh, on site and, um, you know, assessing the situation and moving forward. Gary, from the day you got there on site, how long were you there for before you went back home? I was there 26 days. Got it. So and when you got that call on a Sunday, I think it's February 28, 1993, and you went across the street to the Burger King, when you got that call, did you already know what was going on there or you had no idea this was like a sudden news and event that took place yeah it was it was definitely sudden i mean i just knew that it was a, a religious uh, cult and um that the atf had uh, attempted a raid to uh, arrest the leader and search the premises for illegally converted weapons and that a shootout had unfolded and there was a loss of life on both sides and uh, you know there was uh, a ceasefire was was being attempted and or had already been attempted. I can't remember the sequence. And I needed to get out there and bring some of my negotiators from around the country and and be prepared to to take over negotiations. Now, when you went there, who was the who, what you got briefing from who? Like who is giving you briefing? Are they saying here's what the case is, here's what just happened, this is what's going right. on, and how are you doing your own due diligence? Yeah, my, my boss was giving me a briefing. Now, when I flew out on the airplane, uh, an FBI plane, you know, additional information had come in and was shared with me. Um, but, but, you know, the, the truth be told, when I was feet on the ground in Waco, I mean, what I knew about the Branch Davidians and what had occurred was, was pretty basic. Um, you know, it normally takes a while to, to get all that intelligence, and it's hard to do that when you're in a travel mode. But when I first got there, I sat down with the ATF people. There was ongoing negotiations already with Koresh. And um, there was an uh, FBI colleague of mine there, and there was a sheriff's department uh, negotiator. So I sat down immediately with them and, and, and tried to ask the questions and gather the information that would prove essential uh, to me. From the outside, for those of us that w we watch a lot of movies, you know, movies have done a very good job showing that a lot of these units and, uh, you know, different organizations, they don't do well together, working together. Is there any kind of animosity between the FBI and the ATF or any of those organizations? Or do you guys pretty much work well together? Because it seems like there's a lot of power trips going on. No, oh, we're in charge. Yeah. Oh, we're doing this. I think there's always been a, a certain level of uh, animosity between the various federal agencies. I mean, the United States decided not to have a model with one big national police force. So we have a lot of agencies and you know so whether it's you know the dea works only drugs but the fbi works some high level drug things uh atf works you know mostly it says alcohol tobacco and firearms but it's mostly firearms violations uh 
And, uh, you know, if there's a bombing, they work that, but the FBI works the bombing as well. So there's, there's always some levels of cooperation, often based on relationships that have been built with other people from the other agency. And then there's some conflicts and different methodology. Um, you know, and that's just, that's just part of, of the equation. But, you know, I knew when I got out there, my job wasn't to say, well, you know, ATF screwed this up. And uh, m- my job was to say, how do we, uh, you know, make sure no further violence breaks out? And how do we gain the cooperation of the Davidians to come out? And one of those strategies, which I think goes to a sense to your question, is we purposely had to distance ourselves from ATF. Now, when I first spoke to Koresh that night, I told the ATF people who, who were gathered in a room where the negotiations were taking, I said, listen, I'm going to say some things to Koresh about we are not the ATF. Don't interpret that as a criticism of you. I'm trying to project that we are now in here as somebody different who's going to be objective and neutral and get this resolved. So I have to separate myself from you. And if you take that as a criticism, then maybe you want to leave because that's the way I have to approach this. And they said they understood, and I I hope they did. I'm not sure that all of them did, but, you know, you got to understand there was a lot of anger. Uh, The ATF that I ran into that, that when I arrived looked like they'd just come off a battlefield. I mean, some of them still had blood on their clothes and um, from taking care of wounded comrades, they, they, almost look shell-shocked, for lack of a better term. Now, uh, uh, Bobby, why do they call themselves ATF? I mean, don't they just need to change to F? I know they got started in 1972. What alcohol and tobacco? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, I, I mean, that's a good point. It's, it's officially the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And, you know, I think they're, they're a, a holdover from the old revenuers. That it's a treasury department. And so they're... they're early job was to make sure that uh, the people were complying with alcohol laws and not avoiding federal tax. And, and uh, same thing with tobacco. Uh, you know, people were illegally uh, transporting cigarettes across state lines and all that stuff. And, and they have regulatory people that do that now more than law enforcement people. But their survival has basically uh, in the last you know, 20 or 30 years has depended on their investigations of firearms violations. Yeah, that's, it, it's a weird name to put ATF because I don't think they're going to have anything to do with that the last, uh, you know, like you said, couple uh, tw- uh, dec- uh, two decades. But going back to you getting there. So you get there, you're telling the ATF guys, look, you, got, you guys had a bad start. I can't say I'm ATF. I'm going to say, look, we've not been here. We just showed up. We're FBI. And if I don't come from that approach, the guy's not going to have any kind of a, a, a trust and credibility with me. I almost have to say, look, they screwed up, but I'm not ATF. I'm FBI. So then you build some kind of trust with uh, uh, Koresh, but at that point, had you already spoken to Robert Rodriguez from ATF or not yet? No, I hadn't. Um, I'm not sure if I ever spoke to Robert Rodriguez. Uh, I mean, I was getting information that he reported through others, but I don't know that I had a personal conversation with him. I, I may have. I, I just don't remember, to be honest with you. But to clarify a little bit of what you said, I, I, I never got into the ATF screwed up. I just said, we are a different agency. Um, what we do is we're going to do a thorough investigation. You're saying that they shot first. You're saying that what they did was inappropriate. Our investigation will come to the truth and you'll get your day in court. So that's what I was trying to project. Not so much a, a harsh criticism of them, but a projection of a, of a neutral examination so that they got a fair hearing. Makes sense. So first time you spoke to David, what, what did it seem like and how long was that conversation? 
you know, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a half an hour, the first conversation, maybe a bit longer, but, but he, um, he had been wounded that day and um, uh, was in some discomfort. Uh, a bullet had creased his, his hand, just as shown in the TV show, went between on his wrist, under his thumb, and then it went on through his side in and out. So quite a painful wound. And, uh, and you know, uh, so he was uncomfortable. But, you know, he was, uh, had calmed down a bit by the time I got there. And uh, I would characterize our, our talk as promising, encouraging. He didn't yell and scream at me. He did get angry when he mentioned ATF. And right. why did they do that? Why didn't they arrest me on the street? Why did they have to come in here with da 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 I didn't try to defend or condemn them. I just moved it back to, well, we're here now, David. And, you know, we're the FBI. We're different. We want to work with you and get this resolved. The most important thing is you and no one else in your family gets hard. That's the general approach we, we took, Patrick. By the way, have you watched the entire series yourself? Oh, yeah. You know, I was involved in, uh, I was on set for some of it. My book was one of the two books they used uh, to, 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 to develop. They wanted to project the, um, the view from inside looking out, and they bought David Thibodeau's book for that. He was one of the survivors. And they bought my book for a look of what the authorities were looking at, looking in. The, I, I think the part about the FBI, despite the arguments and the disagreements that were projected, which were essentially, unfortunately, correct, I think is fairly realistic, and I stand by it. I, I think where the producer-directors failed, uh, I think they painted a little bit too positive uh, a picture of David Koresh. Uh, um, he was too sympathetic of a, of a character in the TV show. In reality, he was a lot more sinister, manipulative, dark, self-serving. you know, got to understand, he was really a total demagogue inside there, and people did whatever he said. It, it's not like, oh, I'm the leader. It's like, he's, he's the god. He's the prophet. And uh, people like that can be, be pretty challenging to deal with. So I think, uh, I think the directors were trying to show that he had this charismatic personality that attracted people to him. And, and, and I think they did a good job on that. I just don't think they sufficiently showed his, um, his more challenging side. They didn't show his more challenging side. Yeah, because when I watched the interview, when you guys had the cast, I think you were there. David was there. Michael uh, uh, Shannon was there. You had a couple of the actors that were there that, you know, uh, uh, played uh, 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 Koresh. And uh, David was still defending. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was very much like, look, you know, to me, we weren't doing anything wrong, you know. Yeah. And we were just, uh, yeah, I don't know why the ATF did what they did. You know, we didn't have any gunshots. It came from the outside. You can tell he seemed very convincing. And he even said, I'm not part of the Branch Davidian. I just went there to stay there. I was not somebody that was one of his devout followers. So he, he made the argument where people said, well, you know, this David guy, what did they really do anything wrong? I, didn't, I don't think they did anything wrong for them to be attacked the way they did. So it was interesting to see David's angle as well. Yeah, you know, I had never met or spoken with David uh, before. We met on the set. A lot of people were interested to see how we would get along. We actually got along quite well. There are some key areas we disagree over, and that's fine. I mean, he just called me a few weeks ago. We had a very cordial chat. I actually like David. Um, you know, I think one of the problems I have, his book shows his perspective. 
but he wasn't in with David Koresh when we were negotiating with him. He really didn't see things that, that we saw from the negotiation side. And, you know, ATF did have a legitimate reason to investigate him. You can question whether they should have conducted the raid the way they did, but they were certainly illegally modifying weapons in violation of law. They had, you know, they had grenades, they turned semi-automatic weapons into automatic weapons and all of that's illegal. Did it, what was a, a dynamic raid, the appropriate way to handle that? I mean, you, we can debate that. I, we probably wouldn't have done it that way in the FBI, but they certainly had the legal basis to do it. Um, so, I mean, again, I think David has a different perspective and that was sort of the, the strong quality of the TV show was trying to show both sides. It's just, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think they ended up skewing it a little bit too much towards David Thibodeau's perspective, which I would argue may not be as expansive as it, it should have been to get a better sense of, of Koresh's controlling sinister aspects. Do you have any idea why they did that? Well, again, there's not a lot. I mean, I think he's one of the very few survivors that wrote a book about his experience. And um, they came upon his book several years before they, they reached out to me. Uh, okay. They were looking at another project. And I think um, they, they were really moved by his story. And then they contacted me and they said, oh, well, there's a different side of this as well. And this is a good way to put together a project that shows both sides. And the, the Dowdle brothers, who were the producer directors, I mean, I, they're great guys. I really uh, like them. They're both very professional. But I do think they were perhaps overly swayed a bit by Thibodeau's viewpoint. I'm glad they got a hold of you. That's for sure that they got a hold of you. Uh, uh, let me let me ask you this. So you you've uh, uh, if you were to say total amount of hours you spoke to David, how many hours? Not not David uh, Thibodeau, David Koresh. How many total hours would you say you spoke to him? You talking about me or the FBI? You yourself. Ah, uh, I don't know, 12, 14. Oh my like. gosh, that's a lot of hours. That's a, that's a lot of hours. You know, okay. It was just, and that was at the beginning. You know, once my team arrives, I, I'm the chief negotiator for all the FBI. It's not my job to, you know make the coffee, get on the phone and, and do everything. My job is to lead the team, to organize the team, to set up the shifts, to make sure we're gathering the intelligence, to devise the strategy and to make sure the team's implementing the strategy, to do the analysis. So, you know, it's it's not my job at that point any time. It's like I'm the, you know, when, when the Air Force sends planes to go bomb someplace, the, the general in charge of the Air Force doesn't get in the plane. You know? Makes sense. Yeah. But is it fair to say, so? but still... 12 to 14 hours, it's like being on the front line. So it's not like you were back at the barracks telling everybody what to do. You were still a frontline guy oh, negotiating yeah. with these guys. So, so, so 12 to 14 hours was your conversations with them. But you, you can pretty much say you've listened to every other conversation any of your agents had with them. So you've been involved 100% of the conversations. No, absolutely. And, you know, we, we set up eventually when the FBI took command of the, of the incident, we set up 12-hour uh, shifts for negotiators. So, and we do that, it sounds like a long shift, but we want, it's the old parlor game where one person tells a secret to another, tells a secret to another, and at the end, it's all messed up. Yep. So we wanted the people that you relieved to be the people that relieved you. So there's a, there's no confusion. You know, you tell me what you did on your shift. I embrace it, incorporate it into what I'm going to do. And then when you come back, I'm going to do the same for you. And it minimizes miscommunication. As the overall leader, I would split my time between both shifts to also be a bridge 
to make sure that the oncoming shift doesn't do something that contradicts yeah. uh, and make sure it's consistent with what we did before. So I was working 18 hour days or 20 hour Makes days, sense. you know, yeah, that wears you out, but you know, it, it's what you, what you lose in fatigue, you gain in consistency. I bet. And then you have more leverage to be able to, how, how many total negotiators did you have there? You know, um, at, at one time we probably had, uh, you know, 12 to 14 negotiators, you know, split between two shifts. Now, a lot of those people left after three weeks and would be replaced by somebody else for that whole fatigue issue. So overall, there's probably 40 negotiators that I'm just guessing. I don't have the number off the top of my head. Not everyone, in fact, only a small percentage actually spoke to the Davidians because it, it, there's a lot of functions on the team. You're, you're, you're maintaining a log. You keep a situation board. You're doing uh, progress reports to send back to headquarters. You're interviewing family and, and relatives. So there's a, there's a myriad of tasks that a negotiation team performs that the public may not appreciate. In fact, when, when the children were released that came out, each time they came out, a negotiator would pick them up and talk to them and, you know, find out what we could through that, bring them back. We'd put the child in the negotiation room. We'd call back in and we'd talk to their parents. Hey, we picked up little Johnny. They're fine. We want to make sure you know they're fine. So here they are on the phone, you know, talk to them. There's a lot of good things we did in the negotiations that unfortunately has become underappreciated because of the way the thing ended. Oh, no doubt about it. We'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But from the 12 to 14 hours of you speaking with David, did you get a feeling that this guy is a true believer or a narcissistic guy, a psychopath, a uh, uh, you know bipolar? What feeling did you get from speaking to him? Or was he 100% true believer in what he was saying? Because that's the biggest thing for me. Did he really believe he was the lamb? That's a question that, that I don't have a clear answer for. Um, because, you know, obviously um, there were parts of him that were down to earth and even humorous sometimes. You could talk to him. But when you got into a thin sliver of his personality that was focused on religion, then he had really moved up in, in the Branch Davidians, become its prophet by memorizing almost the entire Bible and be able to string together various verses. Now, a lot of that might sound nonsensical to most people, but his followers really truly believed he had a unique interpretation and was a prophet. Um, how much of it did he really believe or how much of it became his vehicle for controlling other people? I'm still not sure on. David Thibodeau would tell you that this guy was the real deal. I'm not so convinced that, that um, his primary motive, I mean, for example, everybody lived a very Spartan life in there. I mean, they, they didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. They had to take buckets for their human waste out and bury it. But he lived in air conditioning and had conveniences. And, you know, they used to call himself the sinful Messiah. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. And, you know, kind of the classic manipulating, controlling um, a thing that we tend to see with cult leaders. So how much did he really believe or how much it, it just became convenient for him to project that he believed? I don't know. You know, I certainly didn't characterize him as having a diagnosable mental health disorder. I mean, he certainly was narcissistic and perhaps malignantly mar narcissistic, but, but I didn't find him to be necessarily bipolar or schizophrenic, you know, uh, anything like that. I, I ask because sometimes when you talk to somebody, motives uh, will show up. You know, when you're talking yeah. to somebody, 
And you'll know if somebody's a true believer where they can't help but talk about, you know, a certain topic, whatever that topic may be in this case, being, you know, the seven seals and he's revealing this from Revelations and Psalms 2 or, you know, every area that he would go to. I've done negotiations behind closed doors where a guy's coming to me and saying, I really want to just do the right thing for the client. It's just about the client. And then, you know, you kind of try to play along and say, yeah, but if you do this, you'll get $50,000 more commission. And then you realize they're like, oh, really? Yeah. Then you realize maybe it's not really about the client. Maybe it's just about the pocketbook. You just showed a motive right there. Did you have any of those situations with them when you spoke to him? Well, yeah. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, I think his motive was a a guy of very uh, low means, you know, gravitates to this religious order. Um, He was not a good student. He was dyslexic, came from a very troubled background, had a lot of problems in his youth, but he, he found something that gave him power and control and promoted his ego. And he, took it for all it was worth. Um, so it's hard to say how much of that was the motivation, how much true believing. I'll give you one little story. And there's quite a few of them, by the way. But one night he asked the negotiators, hey, by the way, where are you guys getting dinner? And the negotiator said, well, we're going to the local hamburger place, the Whataburger. And it's the only place open this time of night. And he said, oh, my God, the meat's terrible at Whataburger. He said, you know, if it turns out that I am the son of God, the world's going to find out about the meat at Whataburger. Now, does that sound like something a guy that truly believed he was the son of God would say? I don't think so. You know, and it was, it was sort of flippant and self-deprecating in a way. And he laughed about it, you know, but I don't think somebody that really thought they had this divine uh, role would say something like that. And there's other examples of it as well. What is the most random thing he ever told you on the phone where you were flabbergasted? Oh boy, that's a, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. There was a lot of things that he said that surprised us, but um, I, I, I can't come up with a good example on that right now, Patrick. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, he, he was a constant. So our biggest challenge was when he would break off communication with us for long periods of time, and we had to go through Steve Snyder, his deputy. We had a great relationship starting with, with Steve Snyder, but the problem was we quickly determined that no one inside, absolutely no one made any decisions other than David Koresh. So when he was angry at us or didn't feel like talking, we got nothing done, Uh, you know, so we could have a great conversation with Steve, but it was unlikely that that was going to lead to any release of people unless we got Koresh involved. How, How does a theology professor at University of Hawaii who's married he studies theology for a living. How, how does he hear a message from this guy talking about the seven seals, convince him to follow him and allow his wife, Judy, to have his baby? How the hell does that happen? How, do, uh, how did Bernie Madoff get very successful business people to give him their money? I mean, you know, it, it, people, people uh, who are inclined to hear a certain message, you know, they're hearing what they want to hear and they do what they want. A lot of the people that get drawn into these kinds of, of cults organizations are, are people who have questions in their life. They have uh, things they want to know. Um, 
and someone like this provide ant provides answers, provides a nurturing family support structure for them, and they get uh, they get pulled into it, and um, they begin to accept without question what is being said. And you know, opposition is not encouraged or tolerated. And if you don't follow the party line that the leader wants, in this case, Koresh, you you get booted out. You're not welcome. So it's a very insular. Uh, thinking, and you know, we see it on our political front as well. You know, people that, that hold some obscure beliefs, they're really not open to hearing another point of view or another perspective. How do you do that, by the way? Just out of curiosity, like, do you ever do the same methods that you have of uh, trying to persuade somebody of thinking about politics? And because obviously today we're in shambles when it comes down to politics, the level of right. divisions at the highest level, you know, whether it's the protesting, the rioting, whether it's the coronavirus. How do you do that? Or is that is it easier to negotiate with people like David than it is to negotiate with people that have their mindset on politics? Neither one of them is easier. And whether we're talking about this uh, strong political ideology or religious ideology, uh, if you look at someone's personality as a pie chart, and you'll find a percentage, a slice of that pie, I don't know how much it is, 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever, that is the core of their belief system. As long as you are focused on that slice of pie, you are probably going to be unsuccessful in getting them to change their mind. So we as negotiators try to move to that 70, 80% of the pie or whatever it might be that doesn't incorporate that. I'll give an example. You could get a room of uh, 50 pro-life and 50 pro-choice people, and you could sit them there and they could talk all day long and at the end of the day, you'd have 50 pro-life and 50 pro-choice. Do you believe that? I do believe that, yeah. I mean, do you I believe that nothing will change at the end? I, I believe it's highly unlikely for Got anybody to, to make that change. I don't, would never say it's impossible. But, you know, so we learned pretty quickly. We got to get David. We purposely didn't talk about his ideology any more than we had to. Now, we were criticized, we the FBI, by some religious scholars who said, well, if you had just called me in, I would have convinced him that his interpretation of the seven seals was faulty. Well, that's a fool's game. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, it's like talking to Jesse Ventura. You know, he said, well, you know, the, the, you know, the U.S. government blew up the World Trade Center. Okay, well, no matter what logical explanations you give him or counter arguments, it doesn't matter. He's going to believe what he wants to believe. So you realize pretty quickly, if I want to, good conversation with him. I got to move it off of this topic into another area. Maybe a bad example, but I think you follow what I'm, I'm saying. No doubt, that, of course. You know, we, re, we dealt with uh, some years later in, I think it was 96, I dealt with the Republic of Texas siege in Fort Davis, Texas, which was an anti-government guy. And this organization didn't believe that Texas was part of the United States. And they took a hostage and, you know, and I helped the Texas Rangers and the Texas authorities develop a negotiation strategy. And the same thing, the guy, Richard McLaren, that was in charge of the outfit, had some of these totally obscure beliefs about law and treaties and so forth. Total nonsense, uh, totally unsubstantiated by facts, but you weren't going to convince him otherwise. So to engage in a positive conversation, to move the ball forward, as it were, we had to get him off of that topic. And that's something we, we do all the time. And, you know, you do that in business. You know, if, if there's 10 points we want to discuss, and maybe the biggest one, number 10, is the thorniest one, you might as a strategy say, well, let's talk about these other points. Let's get some agreement 
on number one through number nine that we can both live with, and then we'll take the thorny one on later on. But what you've done is by discussing those nine points of potential agreement, you've established a working relationship where you've shown we can work together, we can find some common ground, and it makes it easier for that thorny problem to be dealt with later on. That, uh, that makes sense. But by the way, just out of curiosity, the, the series makes it feel like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rodriguez, David Rodriguez, I think his name is David Rodriguez, the, uh, the Robert Rodriguez, who's played, and the, the fictional character is Jacob Vasquez, that's played by one of my favorite actors, John, uh, you, you know who he is. That plays yeah, John Leguizamo, he's a very great guy. Yeah, he's, I, I, all I think about him is Benny Blanco from the Bronx in the movie Carlitos Way, but that's a whole different story. He's great. Was he, was, was the real life Robert Rodriguez, was he really compromised? Like, did David Koresh really get to him and he converted or no? He was just playing the part very well. From what I know, he, he, he was not converted to the extent the shown on the TV show. He was doing his job. Uh, what is quite accurate, he, I don't think he had the level of engagement with the Davidians that shown. I think Koresh was pretty suspicious of who he was, but still had some study discussions with him. But some of the stuff about involving him in a wedding and so forth and so on, I don't, I don't think that really occurred. But Rodriguez did say, hey, they know we're coming. You need to call this thing off. That, that was accurate. And, you know, a bad fatal decision was made that, well, we better move quicker then before they get ready for us. And that was a tragic mistake. That's, and that's AT, ATF saying that they didn't hold back and they just went at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you know from your military experience in law enforcement, when you lose the element of surprise, that makes all the difference in the world. And they had lost it clearly. And instead of canceling, they decided to move quicker. And it was a fatal decision. So, so coming to the last part of uh, the event, at what point, like when you're making progress, you're negotiating with the milk and you're, you know, did you guys actually put the... Uh, the voice detector on the milk or no, that was just a fictional uh, part of this uh, show. Well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you where we put it, but it was part of the delivery. And, it was uh, part of the delivery. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. And, Very and interesting. You know, we're trying to determine, you know, what we can, what's going on inside. And if we can gain intelligence that way, and we have some pretty sophisticated techniques to do that, but I, I prefer not to go into the details of that, but uh, yeah, that happened. I mean, there was a, a lot of accuracy in some of those interactions, um, you know, and uh, I didn't personally go out and talk to Snyder and Wayne Martin, but one of the negotiators did along with the sheriff that's accurately projected. We did a lot of things out there to try to show the Davidians that we weren't bad guys, you know, that we, we wanted, uh, Koresh wanted uh, Newsweek and Time all had his picture on the cover. He wanted copies of that we sent it in. He wanted sutures for his wound. We sent it in. Uh, he wanted milk for the kids. We sent it in. We sent a tape of ourselves. He sent a tape out. We were doing a lot of things, and sadly and unfortunately and accurately predicted to some extent, uh, to a large extent, was there was a disconnect between the negotiators and the tactical team that, that had a, an aggressive leader that wanted to force them to come out. This was costing millions of dollars a day. I mean, it was tying up hundreds of personnel. It was seen by some as showing the FBI is weak and doesn't know how to resolve one of these things. And um, for that, um, you know, the, the on-scene commander always said, Gary, continue with your negotiation strategy. But then he would also say to the tactical commander, yeah, go ahead with the tanks and crush some cars. Uh, 
well, you know, if you're inside and I'm trying to res- to get your cooperation, you say, I hear you're saying nice things on the phone, but why did somebody just crush my Mercedes in the driveway? So it's sort of uh, it's counterproductive. You lose all the credibility. So, so the the number is the number uh, seventy eight adults and twenty five children. Is that the accurate number? The final count? I think it's yeah seventy seven seventy eight is is what I recall. Yeah, I don't have that on top of my head. Yeah, it was tragic. And, and when that when that happened, and you're making progress, and then you're you know some of the folks are not willing to be patient to go through it. Looking back. What are what are some things on this case when you look back saying, I wish we would have done this thing and this thing and this thing differently, we could have saved these people? Is there anything that you think about today? Sure. I mean, I, I think for a little bit of history, you have to understand the FBI had done quite a few sieges, Atlanta, Lokedale Prison, uh, CSA, Compound. We knew how to do this. And Waco is not so much... Um, a manifestation of us not knowing how to do it right. It is a departure from our long-standing um, methodology and approach. So, you know, that's the biggest lesson is to do it the way we had always done it before. And and that was so frustrating because it would be one thing if we didn't know how to do it right, but we did. And and we erred from that. We had, you know, I certainly have been a critic of the on-scene commander and the tactical commander. Those two along with me basically were the triumvirate that made decisions. But those two were very aggressive oriented, very frustrated, would allow their uh, lack of self-control. And, you know, Koresh would often do something, uh, uh, he, pro- he would renege on a promise and he would behave in a, in a troublesome way. And they would take it personally. As negotiators, we just go back to the drawing board. We're used to people lying to us and not following through. And we don't overreact, whereas they did. And that created so many problems for us. But despite that, we got the 35 people out, 21 children, which I'm proud of. But, you know, they went with a – I was replaced halfway through because they wanted to go with a more aggressive strategy. And after I left, uh, no one else came out, not a single person. That's that's a pretty good thing to anticipate to say, listen, they're going to lie to you. It's their job to lie to you. You still can't lose your cool when they're doing that to you. It's part of the game. Exactly. Exactly. Because they're not on the same team as you. They're not on the same team as you. They're, they're, they're an opponent, but you gotta, you got to somehow win them over, but you cannot be surprised if they're lying to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You expect it. You expect it. Uh, for, for example, on I think the third day, David Koresh uh, made an agreement with us that if he played a 58-minute, if he recorded a 58-minute message, we would broadcast it nationally. He agreed quite clearly that after that, he and everyone would come out and surrender peacefully. Now, I remember going to the on-scene commander, and I said, I think we should give this a try. And, of course, his first response was, what do we get for it? And I said, well, the problem, uh, the real question should be, what do we lose for it? We lose nothing. And, and if he comes out, great. If he doesn't, you know, then we're going to use that against him later on. Now, he didn't come out. He didn't follow through on his promise. Now, as negotiators, we were disappointed. But the, the commander and the tactical commander took it as a personal affront, because they never dealt with people like this and had people lie to them. It's what I would have preferred in the following days to say, David, I went out on a limb for you. I convinced my boss to let this thing be played. I'm trying to help you. And you just pulled the rug out from under me. And I lost credibility with my boss because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I would have hammered him over the head with that for days, you know, and, and laid a guilt trip on it. And, uh, you know, hopefully gotten him to reconsider that and, and look at it again. But 
Instead, when we went forward and took very aggressive action in response to that, it only ratcheted up the tension. It only increased the confrontation. It was counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, were you on the call when he told you God spoke to me, we ain't coming out? Is that you or was it somebody else? No, I wasn't on the phone with him. It was actually conveyed to us through Snyder, uh, not through Koresh. And uh, it was uh, one of the, the lead negotiators was on the phone with him when that happened. I was, I was in the room when it happened, but I wasn't on the phone with him. I mean, how do you negotiate with God? God spoke to me. What do you say to that? I mean, honestly. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big Trump card, isn't it? I mean, it's, that's, it's, that's a crazy card, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, and that's another reason. You know, did, did God really speak to him? You know, a lot of us might be a bit skeptical about that. You know, what I think was David Koresh, as I mentioned earlier, had ambivalence about staying in, coming out, whatever. And I think he got scared at the end, and, and he changed his mind. Because we know that the children were actually lined up. They had little backpacks. They were ready to come out. All his followers thought it was over. And then he says, nope, we're not doing it. Yes, well, right. it's him being self-serving and thinking about what was going to happen to him. Yeah, you know, as a financial advisor, we'll go to clients and sometimes clients will say, you know, let us pray about it before we do this. And we'll say, you know what, let me go ahead and start the prayer. And we, we put our hands out there and say, let me lead the prayer here. Heavenly Father, should I make this investment? Obviously, we joke about it, but uh, I understand that's the one card advisors don't know what to say. You get stuck when the God thing comes it's up. It's tough. It, it, it's a tough one. And, you know, the people that have those strong feelings, they assume everybody else does too. And and it's, a, it's an awkward situation. But, you know, before we go too far, I, I wanted to talk about the, the TV show, which I support, but there's, there's a couple big areas. And one of them is at the beginning, they show the shootout between ATF and Davidians, and they clearly show that ATF fired first. I wasn't there. I'm not here to defend ATF, but there's a lot of doubt about that. There, there is contradictory information about who fired first. So I want to set that straight. The other point is at the very end, they leave the viewer with the impression that the FBI started the fire, and that simply is totally refutable. The Davidians started the fire. Now, they did it because the FBI put in tear gas. There's no question. But the tear gas itself did not start the fire. And the FBI, I mean, there's people out in the country that think, well, the FBI said, let's go burn this place down and kill all these people. It's just preposterous. Um, you know, David Koresh ultimately at the end, you know, decided that, you know, it was better to take his followers with him than, than to peacefully surrender. You know, while I have always been very candid about the FBI's mistakes, and there were many bad decisions made, in my opinion, I've always said that the ultimate responsibility for what happened was on the shoulders of David Koresh. Every single day, we gave him the opportunity to peacefully lead his people out. We made accommodations. We made compromises. We did whatever he wanted. One time he asked, if I come out and I go to jail, will I be able to meet with our followers? We sent him in written uh, commitment to do that. So we did a lot of things like that to convince him to come out, yet he chose not to. So, you know, I think it's a bit unfair to characterize, you know, and again, I'm the FBI's biggest internal critic, but to suggest that anybody, even the commander and the, and the tactical guy who I disagreed with, I mean, they didn't want to see that ending. Nobody did. And, and so I think that's a bit unfair. And a lot of anti-government people are sort of embracing that, but it's, it's nonsense. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the idea when it left at the end. It's like a FBI went in and they bullied them and boom, all these lives on the hands of uh, FBI agents. And, and the fire controversy, no one knows who started the fire, what caused the fire. Some have said one side, some have said the other side. Last thoughts for you before we wrap up. Uh, 
Gary, any modern day cults that keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger that could potentially end up being a threat or not really anything taking place today? I, I'm sorry, I didn't follow. Any modern day what? Cults, any modern day cults like what these guys did, any modern day cults you look at that's uh, growing? You know, I, I haven't, uh, be, I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't, I don't devote much time to looking into what current cults are. However, you know, if you listen to what the FBI is saying, you know, we have a major problem with anti-government uh, militias again. Um, you know, we, we dealt with them uh, before the Oklahoma City bombing. They were gaining a lot of strength, anti-government people, and during the Clinton years particularly. And then after Oklahoma City bombing, where a lot of kids were killed, uh, some of those people dropped off and they said, this is not what I'm into. But now it's built up again, started to build up again under Obama. So there's a lot of people angry at the government um, and, and ready to take up arms and do things. We see it in some of the demonstrations that are going on. Somebody got shot the other day in what Arizona mm -hmm. trying to pull down a statue. You know, and I think we're going to have to reckon with that in this society. I mean, I was appalled when I saw armed gunmen go into the, um, the Michigan State House. And, uh, you know, and I'm sorry, I don't think it's unfair to say if, if 100 or 200 uh, black protesters took automatic weapons in there, I suspect it would have been handled quite differently. And, you know, we have to think about how much, where do we go beyond peaceful protest and the right of assembly and the right of people to uh, express their grievances? And then where do we get into terrorism and intimidation? And so I worry about those kind of groups more than I worry about Antifa, you know, that's a, a political sort of a, a tool thrown about now, you know, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but I don't see the impact they're having versus, uh, you know, some of the far right groups right now. And, but we've got to be vigilant to that. And, uh, you know, when I was a young FBI agent, the Ku Klux Klan was pretty strong. And it's an unheralded story for the FBI, but there came a point, and I was working in, in, in South Carolina at the time, there came a point where the, the Ku Klux Klan almost ceased to exist because the only reason they would meet was for various FBI informants to get together. So there'd be 20 guys in a meeting and, you know, 18 of them were on our payroll. And the only reason they were getting together is to report back what was going on. I mean, we knew what they were thinking and doing, and we were able to thwart a lot of terrorism to the point where they just sort of folded. But now there's a huge resurgence in that. And I find it uh, concerning and, and something that, policymakers are going to have to make some decisions on if these people are, are, you know, don't get out of control. Are there informants on a lot of these organizations that we're not aware of? Like, is the FBI already on the inside knowing exactly, like the city of, Ch the country of Chaz or Antifa or white supremacy or any of this stuff? Are, are there many informants involved from the FBI? I don't know. I don't know. I, w I would hope that they are I would as well. I hope they are legally gathering information. I think the FBI has learned a lot through the years that they're not there to thwart political expression, but to stop uh, acts of violence. You know, so, but I don't know how prepared they are in that instance or what level of, of penetration. In some cases, you find that uh, they don't have the information. In other cases, they've got it covered quite well. But it's a challenging job for law enforcement today. I mean, you know, we... Uh, we, we have to contend with so much that gets stirred up in the, you know, through the news too. And I'm not a, necessarily a critic of the news, but, you know, we've got to watch what we do. And there's a lot of discussion about law enforcement behavior now. I mean, I, I was watching some of the demonstrations and I was aghast at some of the, I mean, obviously I don't like looters or arsonists and, 
uh, anarchist and, and they have to be dealt with effectively by the police and they should be. But I also saw some unnecessary action on the police that troubles me too. So we, we have to figure this out as a society. What, what do we expect of our police departments? What do we want them to do? Are they, how do they respond? You could say, Waco, we should have just left. Well, is that really the answer? You know, I don't know. I think Republicans and Democrats need to hire you and bring you into media because they don't <laughs> seem to be able to get along. You need to be hired. Anyways, Gary, uh, once again, thank you for uh, coming out and being a guest on Valuetainment. Patrick, thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, being your guest and uh, all the best. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.